0: All right, everyone, let's open our Bibles together. I'll ask you to take your copy of Scripture and turn with me today to Mark chapter 6. We'll start in verse 45. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Today we come to the story of Jesus walking on the water. Now, I want you to remember, and we've seen this as we've gone through the book of Mark... In the Gospels, you often have parallel accounts of the same event in multiple different Gospels. You'll have one event that you're reading, perhaps, say, in the book of Mark, and then in other Gospels, you'll have the same event recounted by a different author, perhaps from a different perspective slightly, with slightly different details. As you read these other parallel accounts, you'll find other peculiar, particular details in those other accounts that aren't in perhaps the one you're reading. So this story that we're reading today, you can also find in Matthew 14 and John 6, and I'd encourage you to look at those at some point, perhaps today. But in Matthew's account, we learn that Peter also walked on the water with Jesus, that Peter said to the Lord when he saw it was him, if it really is you, command me to come to you out on the water. And Jesus gave him the power in that moment to walk on the water as well. Now you'll notice as I go through this, though, this is often one of the the very favorite parts of this story. We won't be addressing that today because we're in Mark, and Mark doesn't really address that part of it today. But that's one of those details in Matthew's account that's not in the one we find here in Mark. And so there's going to be other little things that you might not see in the book of Mark today, but what I want you to see from our text today is this, that Jesus sends his disciples out on a trip across this body of water, across this sea, this lake. And once again, they are caught in a storm because of their obedience to him. This has already happened once in the book of Mark. They are caught in a storm because of their obedience to Jesus. When we saw it a few weeks ago, we mentioned when you obey Christ, sometimes things get harder, not easier. When you obey Christ, sometimes life gets harder. Sometimes God sends us into a storm on purpose. And ultimately, every storm of life that God allows us to experience is for two main purposes. One, so that we would grow, so that we would be strengthened. But two, and this is the one I want to focus on today, God does these things so that He could display his own glory in seeing us through the storm. God intentionally lets us experience these things so that he would be glorified, so that we would depend on him. And in delivering us, he could show himself to us as glorious, so that we might see his glory in a way perhaps we never have before. That is the point of our passage today. Let's read it together. Look with me in your copy, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. It says, Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Remember, he's dismissing crowds after feeding the 5,000. Verse 46, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. A few things I want to pull out of this passage today for us, three in particular. The first is this. Just as with the apostles, just as their journey took them there. The wind is against us. The wind is against us. Did you see that there in verse 48? That they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. We are the disciples here. We are the disciples. They are us. Jesus has sent us on a journey, on a mission, if you will. And if you have said yes to that journey, if you have obediently gone out as Jesus has sent you, you can be sure that for you as well, the wind will be against you. If you have gone out to serve Jesus, if you are walking with him, the wind will be against you. In different ways, the winds of culture are against us, are they not? The winds of culture are against us, this culture that we live in. As you seek to stand for what this book actually says, you will find yourself going against the wind in today's culture, against the the current, if you will, which means it's going to be hard. It is hard to swim against a strong current. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. That's where we find ourselves as believers, in a culture where the wind or the current, if you will, is against us, and it is our task to keep going, to keep going in that direction against the wind, against the current, where making headway is painful. It's painful to make headway in a culture like ours. If you want to stand for what God says in his word, you will be called many names. You will be thought of as ignorant. You will be thought of as hateful. You will be thought of as closed-minded, You will be thought of as a bigot. Are you willing to be what Scripture says is a fool for Christ? Are you willing to be a fool for Christ standing in a culture where the wind is against you? Are you willing to stand? The winds of culture are against us, brothers and sisters. Be sure about that. But also be sure it's not the only way the wind is against us. The winds of Satan and his temptations are against us. Satan and his temptations. The Christian life is a call to die to yourself, to say no to the desires of your flesh. And Satan is doing everything he can to get you to say yes to them, to just go along with not just the current of the culture, the current of your own flesh, the current of your own desires. And yet we are called by the Lord to have self-control. We are called by the Lord to deny ourselves, to take up our cross every day, to say no to the things that well up inside of us often, and to say yes instead to him. This is the path we have been called to, and so not only will you be going against the current or the wind of culture, but against your own flesh, against Satan and his temptations, and the winds of trials and sufferings are going to be against you as well. Everyone will experience them. No one is exempt. This world is full of sin and impacted by sin, which means not only do you have to worry about the morality out there, but sin has affected and infected the world and even us to where we have things happen to us that that are just hard. They're extremely hard. They're difficult. They're painful. We go through trials of sadness, of physical difficulties, of health issues, of losing loved ones, And this will happen to all of us. No one is exempt. Not even non-Christians are exempt from this. And so the winds of culture are against us, the winds of sin and Satan and temptation, the winds of trials and suffering. And it says they made headway painfully. Making headway is going to be painful in this life, brothers and sisters. It's going to be painful to make headway. And this is what you must accept if you are willing to follow Christ. This is what we must take on. This is what we signed up for. That making headway in this life is going to be painful. But understand also from our text, it's not all bad news. It's not all discouraging. Notice what it says in verses 47 and 48. The boat was out on the sea. He, Jesus, he was alone on the land, but he saw them. He saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus sees you. In all of your struggles, in all of your trials, in all of your standing against the wind, Jesus sees you. He knows. He sees. And you are never beyond his reach. You are never beyond his reach. He can get to you. There is no obstacle that can stand in his way that can keep him from getting to you. To help you and to minister to you in these trials. The disciples had been in a storm before. They'd been in a storm on the water before, even in in the book of Mark. We've seen it. But at that time, they had Jesus in the boat. At that time, they had him in the boat with them. They are probably at this point thinking, if only he were here with us, we'd be fine. But he's not here. He is on the land. There's no way he can get to us. We're in a boat. He doesn't have a boat. He's on the land. He's not here. If he were here with us, we'd be fine, but he's not. They're worried about that. But my friends, you are never beyond the reach of Jesus. He gets to them anyway. And so the lesson here for us is don't give up. Don't give up. Hold on to Jesus. It is the fourth watch of the night here, it says, in verse 48. The fourth watch of the night he came to them. That means it's between 3 to 6 a.m. It's the time of, of morning when it's darkest, when human beings are the most tired. Not only that, but the disciples have been rowing and struggling against this storm all night. Long in John's account, it says they had rowed for about three or four miles before Jesus came to them. Think about making headway painfully, rowing all night three to four miles, and then that's when he comes. And so at this point, before he reaches them, they would have been exhausted, they would have been discouraged, and they would have felt like they couldn't do it anymore. They would have felt like giving up. They didn't have anything more to give. And just when it seems like they're going to give up and that help will never come, that's when Jesus shows up. That's when he shows up. And so the lesson for us is hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. He will show up. And there will be times when it seems like he's not going to. And when it seems like help will never come, when it seems darkest and most discouraging and you're most exhausted, hold on because he will show up. He will show up in amazing ways that you never expected. What are we doing right here, right now? Well, we've gathered together to worship God. But but why together? Why do we have to do this together? Why do we have to go to church to worship God? Can't we worship God wherever we are? Can't we worship God individually? Of course we can. So why do we do it together? Because one of the things we're doing in church is we're helping one another hold on to Jesus. We come together and we realize wait a second, I felt like I was alone all week. I'm not alone. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through this with me and are walking through this with me and they have my problems and they struggle with the same things I do and we're, we're standing against the wind together, not just alone. We're helping one another hold on to Jesus. That's what church is all about. And so brothers and sisters, I want to help you and I want you to help me. Let's hold on because he is coming. He is coming. The last book of the Bible... Revelation is an entire book about this very thing. Hold on, he's coming. That's what Revelation is all about. Hold on, he's coming. He is. Hold on to him. And so the wind is against us, brothers and sisters, but also his glory is revealed to us. The wind is against us, but his glory is revealed to us. Now, I want you to notice... A funny detail, an odd little detail at the end of verse 48. It says, He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Brothers and sisters, let us not do the same to this miracle of Jesus' here. Do not pass this by. Do not pass it by that Jesus walks on the water. Some of us have heard this so many times that we are already passing right by it in our minds. Yeah, Jesus walked on the water. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard about Jesus walking on the water. I've heard all the cliches, I've heard all the lessons. Brothers and sisters, don't pass it by. Don't pass this by. Don't pass by how awesome this is. That that word awesome is probably the most overused word in the English language. I try not to use it very much, but here it is more than appropriate. Awesome, something that, that brings awe to you, that makes you awe. It is awesome what he does here. He walks on the water. The disciples in verse 51 it says were utterly astounded. How about you? Does this utterly astound you? It should. Or do you, you say, I've heard it a million times. No big deal. He walked on top of water. It should lead us to worship, brothers and sisters. He does not step out onto the water and then do this. He does not put his hands out to steady himself as if he could fall at any moment. He walked on top of the water just as sure as you or I were walking on a newly paved sidewalk. It's easy for him. We must bend to the terrain around us. We must bend toward it. But the terrain and the elements and all creation bend to the will of their Lord and Maker. It is easy for Jesus to do this because he made it all. He made it all. Do you know that? You might be saying, well, God the Father made everything, right? Well, the Bible also says that Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, made it all. For example, John 1, verse 3, where it says of Jesus, all things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 3. Or Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. Listen to this one. In Colossians 1, verse 15, it starts out as, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And then it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so we don't know exactly how this happened in eternity past, but God created everything through Christ, through God the Son. The Father created everything through the Son. Everything was created by him, it says. Everything was created for him, it says. And then it says, In him, all things hold together. What that means is, practically, Jesus, right this second, is holding together the atoms that make up the pew that you're sitting on so that you don't fall. Right now, he is holding the cells in our bodies together so that we don't keel over and die. Right now, he is holding the atmospheric pressure of this place so that we can breathe and have life and function. Right now, he is holding... The universe together, the galaxies together, the solar systems, the planets are hung on nothing. How does this happen? He's holding it together. He holds all things together. Is it any wonder then that he walks on the water? And so, in one sense, that's that's not surprising at all. And in another sense, though, it should lead us to worship because of who he is and how he can do this. He walks on the water. Don't pass it. By. Don't pass it by. Now, this little detail I said though it's it's odd, isn't it? At the end of verse forty-eight, he he meant to pass by them. Did anybody read that and think, wait a second, what what does that what does that mean? Why is it there? And it doesn't tell us. Sometimes that's what you get in the Bible. As you read through your Bible, you're going to find this. Sometimes there are little details. In fact, more often than you would think, there are little details that are not explained. And then you're like, why why is that even there? Now now that's all I can think about. He, he meant to pass by them. What is going on there? Well, we're not told, so we can't be dogmatic about this, but there are a few possibilities that I'd like to give to you briefly with my thoughts on each. What does it mean that he meant to pass by them? This is important for the point of our text. First, first possibility. What could it mean that he was going to pass by them? Well, I think this is the, the least likely of them all, but first... This could mean that Jesus intended to pass by them unnoticed, but then they saw him. Kind of like in the morning when I intend to pass by my kids' rooms without waking them up, but I step on a a board that creaks and all of a sudden, I, I didn't mean to do that, right? But this, I think this is the least likely. This doesn't jive with what we know about Jesus. He is always intentional. Jesus never says oops, right? Jesus never says oops. That's not in his vocabulary. He does everything intentional on purpose with perfect, with perfection. And so I, that's an option, but it's the least likely, I think. Second, what's the second option? Well, this could be from the perspective of the disciples in the boat. Just from their perspective, it looked like as if he was going to pass them by. Just from their perspective, quite possible. However, most of our major translations actually say he intended to to pass by them, or he meant to pass by them. Not, it seemed like he intended, but he intended to pass by them. So I think that one also is probably not the case. Third, I think this one is what it means. Third option, Jesus meant to pass by them, not unnoticed, but so that they would see him. And so passing by here does not mean passing and going off somewhere else. It means passing in their their field of vision. He meant to walk. In such a way that they would see him. He intended to pass by the boat so that they would see his glory because he's walking on the water. He meant to do this. He meant to come to them. He meant for them to see his glory and that he can walk on water. He means to do this. He means to show them his glory. Now, what does Jesus say when they think it's a ghost? Did you notice that? They, they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out. But immediately, verse 50, verse 50 he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Now, the literal Greek there is ego a me. And I know that means absolutely nothing to you, but here's what that means in English literal Greek right here, it means I am. I am. Where have you heard that before? You remember? Moses in the burning bush? You remember Moses asking God, you're sending me to, to the Israelites to, to free them, but what if they, they say, well, we don't know if God actually sent you, which God sent you? What should I tell him your name is, God? And God gives Moses his name. Not the name that everybody else calls him, his self-proclaimed name. And what is his name? He says, Moses, you tell him, I am has sent you. I am who I am. You see, what I think Jesus is doing here is he's not just calling out to them and saying, don't be worried, it's me. But he's calling out to them saying, don't be worried. I am is here. God in the flesh. God has come to you in me. I am God with us. He is proclaiming not only his glory, but his divinity to the disciples here. I am Remember, that same man, Moses, after the ten plagues and after they got out of the land of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and Moses eventually asks God, please show me your glory. And what does God do? He he hides Moses in a cleft of the rock with his hand and he says, Moses, I will what? I will pass by. He meant to pass by them. I will pass by. And then you will see Now, Moses couldn't see God's full glory. God says, if you saw that, you'd die. But I will let you see my back. Or some translations say that the place where I just was is residual glory. I'll let you see that. I will pass by and show you my glory and proclaim my name. Proclaim my name to you. I think Jesus is intentionally hearkening back to Exodus and hearkening back to God with Moses and saying, God is here. Take heart, God is here. Think about what Jesus has just done. He feeds thousands of people wandering in the wilderness. Thousands of people. He just fed 5,000 in a desolate place. We've seen that before. God feeding thousands in a wilderness. And then he passes by his chosen servants here and proclaims his name. And so, his glory is revealed to us. But finally, I want you to see, not only is the wind against us, not only is his glory revealed to us, but this morning the choice is before us. There's a choice before us. Look at verse 52. Another unique detail to this account. Verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Actually, that that comes right after when it says they were utterly astounded. Verse 51, they're utterly astounded for... Why were they utterly astounded? They did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They did not understand what? What was it that they didn't understand? Well, the implication is, because they're astounded, the implication is they don't understand this man can do whatever he wants. They should have understood this man can do whatever he wants. He has all power. But their understanding, I want you to notice here, their understanding is not due to their lack of of information. Their lack of understanding is due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. The primary reason, brothers and sisters, why we don't understand Jesus or why we do understand Jesus, the primary reason is hardness of heart. Think about it. This is all over Scripture. Understanding is not merely a matter of the brain. Understanding is not merely a matter of intellectual grasp. Understanding God or not understanding Him is a matter of the heart. It's the condition of our hearts. Think about it. Why would someone think that there is no God? Why would someone come to a conclusion there is no God? Is it because they have no proof? Is it because they don't have enough information? No, it's hardness of heart. Why in the world would someone think God is evil? Why in the world would anyone think that God is out to ruin our happiness? This God that we know, why would anyone think that? Is it due to lack of information? No. It's hardness of heart. Why in the world would anyone think the Bible is a dangerous book? The Bible that gives us life and truth. Why in the world would anyone think that? It's hardness of heart. Why in the world would anyone think that Christianity is a religion of bigotry and hatred? We, we, we find grace and love and forgiveness here. Why would anyone think it's bigotry and hatred? It's not lack of information. It's hardness of heart. Why would anyone think that Jesus is a myth? That these miracles were made up stories, that they didn't really happen, that he didn't really rise from the dead? Why would anyone think that? Is it because they don't have enough proof? It's because of hardness of heart. It's not about whether you intellectually grasp this or not. It's about the condition of your heart. We see this case in point when Jesus showed up and the Pharisees, the ones who were experts in the Old Testament, the ones who could have quoted you chapter and verse of all the prophecies of the Messiah who was to come, the ones who were who were waiting on the Messiah and would have told you their entire lives were built on waiting on the Messiah. The ones who were supposed to know God better than anybody else missed him when they showed up right in front of their faces. How in the world does that happen? It's because it's not about intellectual ability. It's about the condition of your heart. And so Psalm 95 says to those in that day and to us today, Psalm 95, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do you believe that Jesus really did this? Do you believe that he actually did it? Do you believe he he actually did all this stuff that we've been looking at in the book of Mark? Do you really believe that he actually healed Diseases that were incurable? Do you believe that he really raised people from the dead? Do you believe that he actually fed over 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish? Do Do you actually believe that he really made a storm stop just by speaking to it? Do you believe he actually walked on water? Do you believe he actually died and then came back to life days later? Do you really believe that? Now I think many of you will just give a quick non-thought answer. Well, yes, of course. Well, how is it then that so many say they believe these things and yet can be apathetic about worshiping him? How is it that so many can believe these things, yet it makes no real difference in their lives? How is it that so many can believe these things and still break his commands when our flesh wants what it wants? If this man did everything this book says he did, what are you doing coming to church once or twice a month and then doing your level best not to think about Jesus all the other days? If he did everything this book says he did, what is that? What what even is that? In 1 Kings 18, Elijah looked at the prophets of Baal who were trying to have it both ways. They were trying to worship God and worship Baal. And Elijah says to him, how long are you going to go limping, or you could say waffling, between two different opinions? How long are you going to do this? Choose. Because with Jesus, this guy, either you're all in on this guy or you're out on it. But what doesn't make any sense at all is how in the world could you be halfway, apathetic, thinking he's, he's not that big of a deal? If you come to church a couple Sundays a month and then don't think about Jesus the rest of your week, you're on the fence. You're not walking with him, you're on the fence. Do you not see? Either this man did all these things and it changes everything, or he didn't. And you can forget all about the Bible and church. Who cares about church if he didn't do this stuff? If this is not real, who gives a rip? If this is not real, go live life the way you want to live it and eat, drink, and be merry for the the end's coming. Get it while you can. But if this is real, it makes no sense to just halfway give a cent to it. And just kind of... Have it as a nice little part of your your family's weekend. It makes no sense at all. I am not just up here every week pleading with people to get baptized. I'm asking some of y'all who have been baptized to consider whether or not you're actually saved. To, To do a dangerous work in your heart. And to ask yourself, am I actually following Jesus? I'm asking, I'm I'm pleading with you to ask yourself if you live like you actually believe this stuff. Do you live like you love Jesus more than your work? Do your actions speak that? Do you live like you love Jesus more than your hobbies or your kids' sports or fill in the blank? Because if he came and did all of this today, it's all anyone would be talking about. And we'd have people quitting their jobs to go follow this man. But we would also have, just like during his day, we would also have people who were fascinated and interested but not committed. So which are you? Which are you today? And I'm here to tell you, if you feel like I've been on the fence this whole time, like, I'm just now coming to the realization, like, I, yeah, I got baptized a long time ago, but I have just been on the fence. You can make a decision here today. You can commit to the Lord here today that that's not going to happen anymore. I'm going to let him in and do his work, and it's going to change our family life. It's going to change the way I go about my day. It's going to change my job. It's going to change all the hours that I've got. It's going to change my desires. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. It's going to be hard at times. But if he did all of this, and he came back from the dead, and I'm going to face this guy at the judgment? Are you ready for that? That's what I'm asking. Right now, I want to give some time for us to think about that and to pray about it. Each week here at Columbia Christian, we want to give time after the sermon for every single one of us to respond. Some people will need to respond to God's word in a public way. And we we give that opportunity here in just a moment. But right now, every single one of us needs to respond. Every single one of us needs to pray to the Lord about what God just spoke to us. So he spoke to you, now you speak to him. Let's give this time of individual silent prayer for doing just that. And after we pray individually for a few moments... We'll have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond publicly can do so. Let's pray.